0: Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. Our goal is to get to the root issues of systemic problems using a theological and psychological lens. We hope you enjoy. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings malls churches and large commercial properties are their specialty managed properties nationwide no problem putman restoration services their clients nationwide they are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the u.s and canada giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out trust the professionals at putman restoration when disaster strikes visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029 Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and I have today um, Kath Cunahan, and she is a psychotherapist over in London. Um, I've been following her on Instagram for a while, and we've been trying to meet for about six months off and on, and so I'm really excited to have you today. Um, Some of the things we're going to cover are trauma. She works with people a lot on a lot of different things in family trauma, and so we're going to get into that and kind of hear her story, and we hope it helps you guys. So Kath, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do.
1: Hi, Clint. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. Um, so, where should I start? What do you want to hear about? I mean, I can tell you. About well, how your did you, Yeah,
0: tell, tell tell me a little bit about how you grew up and what what kind of led you to being a psychotherapist and yeah, you know, just okay. that, as much of that as you want to tell.
1: Okay. So, I guess um, I think it's um, Beatrice Beebe, and she says that research is me search. Okay. Yeah. I think that that's really true for many of us. Um, So I was drawn to psychotherapy because of the dysfunction in my own family and because of how much therapy helped me. Um, I grew up in South Africa. Um, I'm the eldest of four children. We had another brother who died, though. And um, my parents, uh, well, my dad was a doctor, uh, but also an alcoholic. And that really kind of clouded mm. our whole family having addiction in the family. Yeah. And um, but there was a lot of silencing and shame. Ooh. So kind of just acting like everything was kind of shiny on the outside, even though it was kind of chaotic in the inside. Um, and I think that high functioning alcoholism is really, really common. Well, I mean, I know that it's really, really common. Um, um, but often we don't know the impact of things until we kind of look back. Um 2020, might- right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I think that a couple of things happened in my like my brother dying. So that for my parents, that was kind of a catastrophe, having a child who died when they were a baby and um of cot death. And um that was kind of just kind of shoved under the carpet, I think. They didn't it was nineteen seventy-nine, so I was three. They didn't have any therapy. Um they pretty much had a baby really quickly after that. And my dad's drinking really picked up um and my mother was very, very depressed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and but always there was this difference between appearance and reality. And I think that's a really common theme with trauma. That um, what goes on in the family home is is quite secret, and um, comes with a lot of shame. And everyone kind of colludes to keep it quiet, right. basically. Um, and so that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. About is like honesty and breaking down shame. Mm-hmm particularly for new parents and for people who've been through trauma, I think, because our tendency is so often to silence ourselves and to somehow think we're bad, because, you know, when you grow up with addiction, there's always a core of shame in the family, and, um, yeah, I really want to kind of break that down for me and for, for everyone, because I think that once we can all see how – like we are all good enough, like we're all created by this, you know, we're all amazing actually, but we just don't, we don't think that basically, so I don't know why I'm saying basically so much, but anyway, but um. so then I guess in my family, part of the um, the drive to like looking shiny and normal was a lot about having clever children so we were very, um, like our results were always really important, our school results, uh-huh. and um, we focused a lot on that and that seemed to kind of contribute to this idea that everything was really good and sort of shiny. Um, And
0: so the the outside self didn't really reflect the inside state of what was going on. Right.
1: Yeah. No, there was a lot of kind of cognitive dissonance between the outside,
0: which is another right. Typical pattern for addiction or something in the family is, you know, exactly.
1: And all the, I mean, I love the, um, I'm a firm believer that addiction is very much related to childhood trauma and that it's all about affect dysregulation and um, attachment trauma, essentially. Yep. Um, and it's really helped me to look back at my dad's childhood, actually, and at his his parents' childhoods and to see how some of these patterns were kind of inescapable um, and that um, his own abandonment trauma meant that he didn't have enough um, capacity to regulate his emotions and he had no idea how to do things. and. Um, being a doctor in some sense gives you a front of like um uh, kind of um almost being like like godlike in some way that you can fix everything yeah um ironically and, and actually there's a lot of addiction often with um with doctors either prescription meds or drinking
0: yeah surgeon um, surgeons yeah. especially right yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly
1: that's very ironic but that's a bit of a deviation but then
0: was that what your dad was
1: no, he was a he was a, an obstetrician and a gynecologist, and then he retrained to do occupational health. Okay. So um, mines and foundries and like steelworks and things like that. Gotcha. Um, and um, then, I guess over time, I was the eldest child, and often the eldest child takes on the role of, um, yeah, dealing with the parent um, and. I was the one who spent my whole life trying to just come up with the perfect speech to convince him not to drink, mm. um, to have his five fruits and vegetables a day. And if he just had his five fruits and vegetables a day, then, um, then maybe he wouldn't drink and our family could be better. Cause it was really, it kind of eats away at the, at the core of the family really. Um, mm. But somehow my mother didn't seem to have enough, I don't know, enough of her own kind of, energy to kind of fight him. So I was always the one who was angry and fighting with him. Yeah. Um, and sort of would you shouting say, like would, would
0: you say resiliency?
1: Um, I don't know if she was, I think she also had a core of shame. Ah. So she came from a family who were very focused on kind of keeping up with the Joneses mm. um, and making sure you had a nice, you know, like your tea set and, and, and what your house looked like or things like that were more important than kind of um, actually what was going on. Um, and so I think that she just wanted to kind of keep it hidden because admitting that there's alcoholism, because we link like what's going on to, to our core self, we think it's about us. right? And so it feels better to just try and hide it. And I think she didn't have enough um, shame resilience, you know, so not yeah, maybe she didn't have enough resilience to kind of deal with it and to also just be an adult. Cause I wish, I wish she'd
0: left my dad basically. Right. Um Well, you think that's because, you know, she's acting out of the inner child attachment wounds. And so she didn't have enough like maturity in her emotions to kind of stand up for herself, set boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's so interesting um for all of us because, you know, you and I have the luxury of having, being in the first generation where we go to psychotherapy and deal with this stuff. Right. So yeah it's like this, it's this battle of uh, two truths at the same time, which is, man, I'm so frustrated that my parents didn't get therapy and didn't get help and their parents didn't. And now we're suffering because of all this generational trauma. And at the same time, like there was no one for them to go to. So how bad would that be? Right? Like, how bad would it be if me and you are in the same place that we are with all the problems that we've probably worked through in therapy and are working through and our kids are blaming us and we're like, well, where do you want me to get help? And so I think it's that it's such an, a crazy time in life where i mean obviously how you're talking about it one shows you're a healthy professional and also shows the work you've done in therapy to be able to put yourself in their shoes and, and have the insight into you know oh man they they had some really rough stuff too and it's not about me and it's not about my worth and value and honestly it's not about theirs either um no. but that's part of the problem right is that they never realized that
1: no they never realized that and i think that. I mean particularly for women um divorce i was i was um, my mother converted to being catholic actually my father was from like a strict catholic family my mother converted religion and married him and um catholicism says you know divorce is not a lot no longer a sin but um it comes with so much shame And even though i mean they did actually get divorced in the end because of something my father did but that was only in 2003 So really quite recently, but still my mum held a lot of shame about it. And um, it takes a long time to kind of um, separate yourself out from the things that have happened to you and your sense of Mm self-worth. And I think that she didn't have a good grounding of that in her own childhood. So, um, yeah, she didn't have that. And also, we don't know, like, we... Like all this, you know, the t- attachment theory and John Bowlby's work and Mary Ainsworth and Mary Main and all those people was kind of the nineteen sixties. But we haven't had like um brain um like like neuroscience and brain research that right. kind of backs up all that work until like the nineteen nineties. So um It's wild.
0: We're not that you know, far. We're not that far no. removed from it. Like we act like we're so smart.
1: Yeah. And also, it's so new that our parents didn't have access to any of this information. So I think that, like, my own children um, have connected me much more to my childhood pain Ooh. in ways I could never have imagined.
0: Amen. Because they
1: asked me th- Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, I think, the pain of parenting, really. But um, I had a brother who died at three and... um he died of cot death, and I think that they just took him out of the house. They took him to the hospital. I never saw him again. I didn't get to, like, kiss him goodbye or, Oof. you know, look at the dead body or anything. And my own children say to me, um, did you get to say goodbye to him? What happened that day? You know, what who talked about it? And and I'd never thought about that. I'd never thought about, like, oh, my word, that day I would have woken up a three-year-old. I would have been overjoyed about this baby brother, and then they've just gone. And I don't think that they had any... Um, you know, now we are so kind of um, empathic with children, and we understand about emotions, and we know that they are so in tune with everything. So we would sit down and explain everything. But I think there was literally nothing.
0: Well, yeah, and so that you would have, yeah, you know, right. And that's the difference. Is like what I'm saying, and why I'm ha- like, why I'm glad you're here. Is you know, still there are millions of people who still think the way they did twenty years ago. They still don't have access to the brain and the body and the parenting, and that's what's yeah. sad to me. Is You know, um, when I work with people in church, especially just trying to educate them on what I call God's general revelation. It's like, well, we have the science that shows how God made us and and the consequences of sin and brokenness and how that's affecting all these things. So let's try to parent a child based on like their developmental stage, like what they can learn, what they can't learn, how they best learn, how they best regulate, you know, and based on their own story, their own testimony of like how you've raised them instead of like there are these little machines that we just like behavior modify all the time and train them into whatever. And and it's, it's still a problem. So.
1: It's a massive problem, I think. And like, we need to get that knowledge that attachment is a neurobiological system out into the world, into every, like, forget about which crib you're going to buy, which pram or stroller or whatever. That's like literally in the who cares category. It's much more important to teach parents. I think about like
0: (laughs) that. So good
1: like that like the attachment stuff is so important and how much their own attachment wounds will be triggered because i think that's why there's so much shame in parenting because parents are like what have i done like how come i'm so bad at this or how come i've got these feelings that i've never experienced
0: you know yeah they've been shoved down for like 40 years you know
1: yeah exactly shoved down um and so it kind of explodes in your life basically um and it's kind of like what's going on but I didn't actually finish your first question, so let me quite quickly wind that up about- Oh, this about is
0: great. No, I, I got
1: into therapy. Um, so basically I left South Africa when I was about 23. I think basically I kind of left my family because I couldn't cope with my role anymore and with the dysfunction and um, also the lack of honesty, I think, around um, having this addiction and we're trying to cover it up and everything. And um, I um, I moved to London And then um, I worked in financial services because I thought that was a clever career and that um, I needed to do something that was clever because that was important to my family. And over time, um, I knew I wasn't happy. I kind of had disastrous relationships and overworked and shopped. I had a massive, my, so I I also have addiction issues, but they're not in drinking. I mean, I don't drink, but um, I was a big shopper. That was one of the ways that I regulated myself.
0: Oh man! In a big work. Amazon's done a work on some people for sure.
1: Yeah, or just the internet generally. Yeah, for um, sure. But um, and then two big things happened in my life. Both my parents died within a year of each other, and um, kind of my whole life fell apart. Um, and all the kind of, I was really a codependent caretaker, and everything. All the things that I'd been doing to kind of keep myself like functioning in some way were yeah. kind of ripped from me. Um and there was quite a lot of kind of tragedy and it was just all a bit disastrous. And um therapy really helped me with that. I'd had quite a lot of therapy before, but no one had ever pieced together the addiction, the trauma and um the attachment stuff mm-hmm. um, and kind of to see why self abandonment was so familiar to me why i continue to do that why i continue to people please why i continue to perf- perf- like perfectionism and then i learned so much more there's like whole books written about adult children of alcoholics and and adult daughters of alcoholics actually yeah. and i was like oh yeah that's me <laughs> and i found that really comforting actually um and therapy really changed my life it changed it changed everything and um Financial services were just going to eat my soul, I think, if I carried on working mm-hmm. there because it was just kind of – they pay you a lot of money, but they're not paying you a lot of money because it's its enjoyable. They're paying you a lot of money because you're enduring something. Um, mm-hmm. And so I retrained when I was still working there. Um, and, yeah, I feel very blessed every day to do much of this work and to, like, walk alongside my clients. It's really special work.
0: Yeah, well, your story is amazing, and I appreciate you being so vulnerable. Uh, and telling it, you know, it's very, very similar to my own story, you know, and childhood trauma and divorce. And, and it's funny you were saying, you know, that experience because my oldest is eight and a half and my parents divorced about eight, eight and a half. And so I'm in the season right now where I'm like, you know, walking into the, the kitchen to see him or going to do something last night, you know, he wakes me up at four this morning and he's like, Hey, dad, my covers are all messed up and I can't fix them. Come help me. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to kill you, but I love you. Uh, so I go in there, you know, and cover him back up and fix his covers. And, you know, my brain's like, you can't do this yourself. You know, give him a kiss. And I go back to sleep. Of course, I didn't say any of that. Um, and I'm like, walking into the back to the bedroom thinking, my parents sat me down Like, could I imagine going in and waking him up tomorrow and going, hey, listen, you know, I'm leaving. Um, You know, we 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 don't love each other anymore. And, you know, whatever the story is, um, see you every two weeks, once a weekend. Like, even saying that out loud makes me want to throw up. You know, it's like. And that's, you're right. Like in that, that constant tension. And again, my, my parents know, and we've talked about all this stuff and I've forgiven them and worked through all that and and know they have their own story and their own problems and have no judgment or criticism for them now. But even though I've worked through all that in therapy, like you were saying in the moment, this stuff still comes up in your body and still comes up in your heart. And you're just like, Oh man, like this is what it, this is what I was go what I was going through at eight and a half. And, and it's, it's, we're not prepared for that sometimes now I know it's coming. So like, I've been working on that in therapy for two years, like, Hey, in a couple of years, your kid's going to be your age when you're going through this, you know? And I think that's such an important role of therapy is not just dealing with it in the crisis, but so much of the prevention of looking ahead and going, okay, there are going to be seasons that you have in your teenage years where you lost your virginity or you had the sexual trauma happen or in your college years where this thing happened. help you be ahead of it because your kids are going to be that age and it's going to bring it back up. And so what are you going to think about it? What do you believe about it? How are you going to process that? What supports are you going to use? And, and it sounds like you're doing all that awesome. So, you know, which I'm sure informs what you do now. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like hearing what you just said about, I think divorce is such a tragedy and I don't think we actually talk enough about that in terms of how impactful it is on kids because it's so common. Never. And it is a catastrophe for the child yeah i think really. it's one
0: of the worst one of the worst traumas you can go through as a human being is to have these mm. primary caregivers who are supposed to model pretty much all healthy relationships for your entire life um go it's over you know yeah. and for especially if you're younger i mean it's hard if you're a teenager and adult too but When you're younger and it's not taught to you, you even if they tell you it's not your fault, you can't help but have. You've already probably been playing in that system, like you and I, the fixers and the helpers for years. So, yeah, you can say it's not your fault, but I've already been blaming myself for five years. So, this is just the inevitable ending of a thing that I already think my responsibility I have for it anyway.
1: Yeah, and then we think we haven't done it well. Like, how come we couldn't fix this? And and that's really devastating. Really,
0: really devastating. And you bring that into your future relationships and into your marriage and you know, I don't know about you, but even me in marriage, sometimes I'm like, you know, I go from self-deprecation to trying to fit, you know, it's just this dance of like checking in with myself and going, this is, not everything's your fault, but what is your fault? And just that need to like save everything is is difficult. And now I'm like, well, you, yeah. know, you know, you know, I have to tell myself, you know where that's coming from. That's mom and dad issues, that's trauma issues Um, and find some truth and, and get calm and, you know, but it, it stays with you. And, and that's the other thing we don't talk about is how the consequences of divorce all the way into adulthood, you know, with grandkids, yeah. watching your kids suffer because of your parents' divorce.
1: Yeah, it's true, book. And often if you don't have if there's estrangement in terms of the divorce and the parents don't speak to each other or well, they won't be in the same room, it's got repercussions always for as long as they live. Um and it's so kind of um so stressful and so um, you know, all future kind of big family events have the potential to be ruined in some way if you mm-hmm. have to kind of have two different rooms for people to be in or any you know there's just so many complexities around um the actual practicalities of life yeah we're aiming to these estrangement but um I think you're so right about what comes up in our bodies and what like the ages that happen um the seasons when things happened um you know if they got divorced in the summer sometimes um like I remember summer holidays not being great because there was so much drinking and um, all being a bit disastrous. And so I often find myself sort of inexplicably like quite sad in summer. And it took me a long time to figure out, oh yeah, that's old stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not for me now because otherwise we can go into this like labeling of what's wrong with me. Why am I like this? There's like, I'm definitely, yeah. I should be on a lot of medication or I've got tons of issues. And actually I think that we need um, so much softness for ourselves so much tending to ourselves and so much self-compassion
0: yeah which yeah. you know you you have this new podcast can you talk about that is that because that's what I got out of your podcast uh, is grow yourself up is that right yeah yeah and I, I love that that was one of the things that, that drew me to you is just that constant you know I, I call it reparenting yourself yeah you know it's the same thing it's just like so I mean we're kind of getting into that but um how do you help people? Or maybe what are some of the things that you're working on now or that help them when they have, I think a lot of people who I work with and that listen to this and they message me have really difficult relationships with their adult parents as adults. So what are, the thing, what are some of the things that you see in that that are kind of the, the more difficult things that you're helping people navigate? Well, I
1: think there's a huge range of that. In terms of the relationship with the parents and how much responsibility the parents have taken, like best case scenario is the parents um, go to therapy at some point themselves and can see um, the impact they had. Because I think one of the common things I notice with with parents who are emotionally immature or abusive or um, or narcissistic um is that they don't see their child as a separate being who needs mm-hmm. to be nurtured and loved and cared for the child is like part of them and it and it's just there for their needs so kind of there is an extension of them to make them feel good yeah um,
0: yeah we I talk with people all the time to help them understand that you're an adult but your your parent didn't have a solid identity and their worth and their va- their value. They didn't feel love. They didn't feel safe. So when they had you, they had you to make them feel good, right? They had yeah. they they had you to put out into the world and be a reflection of who they are because they didn't have a, a firm identity. And if the, yeah. if they're still doing that in your 40s and 50s, it's a major problem and so hurtful. But you're so used to it your whole life that yeah. you don't know what to do.
1: No, and, and often it feels disloyal. People are like, oh, I can't do, I can't cut them out. I can't have a no-contact boundary um, because it's so devastating because we are also then left with no sense of self because if we grow up being like, it's almost like we're, I don't know, we're kind of held in like a kind of a, a rope around us instead of being demarcated as a separate person and being taught you know, that concept of mentalization where you're, you're, in my mind, I know you're a separate person with your own mind and your own viewpoints and you're totally separate to me, but like dysfunctional parents or toxic parents or whatever, however you want to label, they don't have that concept. It's Mm -hmm. just you are here to make me feel good. So there's always that thing about if the child comes and says, I feel sad about something or I didn't like it when you did that, the parent then turns it back on themselves and like, I can't hear your distress um, you're making me really distressed, and then the child gets pulled into then rescuing the parent. Yep, it's such a kind of common dance, actually, unfortunately, because it seems to be almost embedded in some cultures. But um, so I guess I try and help my clients work with where their parents are. Um, if if they have gone to therapy and they can see what damage they caused and take responsibility for that, that's really amazing. But. Most often the scenario I see is that um, it's really difficult to put in a no contact boundary and there's that sense of disloyalty.
0: Yeah. So what's that? So, so what what would you, what would you say would be a reason for a no contact boundary?
1: Well, I think that's very much up to the individual to decide Sure. Um, in terms of, you know, that expression, I think it's from 12 step, but um, when we're sick and tired of being sick and tired
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I think that, Unfortunately, because there's always a part of us who's wishing that somehow this could be different. You know, we always we like return to the scene of the crime, as it were, to try and find a different, um, uh, like ending. Yeah. And um, but sometimes it takes many times to say goodbye, and we have to go back and relearn the lesson, like multiple times. But um, and I think that we have to be really gentle with ourselves around that because it, it like there's that like kernel of hope of this might be different this time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, I mean, any reason, like a continuing abuse, um, undermining um, you verbally or anyway, um, trying to undermine your parenting, trying to um, set your children against you. You know, some, some uh, narcissistic parents do that, where they try and kind of capture the grandparents and so, not, sorry, the grandchildren. Um, and I've had, you know, when people say to us, oh, but they have to have a relationship with their grandchildren. I don't think that being a grandparent is a right for a grandparent Ooh. if they haven't got a good relationship with the child.
0: You can say that again. You know I mean? Yes, I do know like what you mean. Can't,
1: you can't just have a relationship with your grandparent, with your grandchild, sorry, if you are undermining or um, undercutting and abusing or, um, you know, not seeing them as a separate person of, of the child, of your
0: child. So, yeah, it's, yeah not, I it's, it's not a right, you know, just because you are huh. the, the blood grandparent doesn't mean you have a right to engage with that kid. I would say the same thing in, about siblings, right? Like if you're an adult yeah. and you have an adult sibling who doesn't speak to you or you don't have a relationship with, but then they want to call and talk to their niece and nephew, you know, I think that's a no go for me as well um if you yeah. if you don't have enough safety and security to build trust within the relationship with me then why, why do you want to talk to my child you know why do you want to have influence or a relationship that i now have no control over and if i am going to have any control over it i have to get in an unsafe situation
1: yeah exactly and i think that that's really complex because our children may at some point go on to develop relationships with people that we really struggle with but and that's their business when they're an adult but i think um when people are living in our home and, um like it's it's I mean, it's really complex, I think, this stuff, because there's so much pain in it,
0: oh, so and much, everybody's offended it, and hurt,
1: yeah, everyone's offended and hurt, and everyone feels so aggrieved and so kind of um uh unable to look at their part often and um, yeah, I mean i would I suppose I would say to someone if they're estranged that that really getting to know what works for them and honoring that is important and that boundaries can shift as well. And I think that also our own, like, I guess the proportionality of our story changes as we grow older and we get a different perspective sometimes and some things come to the foreground and some things proceed to the background. And I've had periods, if I'm really honest, I've got two sisters and a brother and um, it's very complex when you grow up in a family where you haven't had your needs met Mm -hmm. because after my parents died, all of us were under-mothered. And so we've tried in some way subconsciously to get each other to meet our needs. Mm -hmm. And it's very messy. And I've had periods of estrangement from um, one of my sisters because we were really struggling to have like an adult relationship. And um, um, she had the story that I was like the bossy older sister and, um, and uh, Da, 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 and and I which we really worked really hard to um move away from that and I really looked at my part and what I'd done and um I had certain stories about her but um and it's caused me so much pain like profound pain mm-hmm. which I had to really like grieve and um and kind of just think I'm going to detach with love because um I mean it's really difficult but and, but then what happened was that um, my other sister was here recently in London, and we had this amazing dinner together, actually. And um, because my other sister was there, there was enough relational safety and kind of co-regulation between us that um, we could keep on coming back to the same conversation and, like, gently looking at our parts in it. And um, and I guess it might be irritating in some sense to them that I'm a therapist because I'm always trying to teach them things, but... Um, I was able to explain something about stress responses. I'm laughing I so
0: hard because I get it. I try so hard not to do that. It's you know, hard not to, you know.
1: I don't try that hard not to do it. <laughs> I, I wanted to explain about stress responses because, you know, when we go into a stress response, if we just go into fight because we feel dysregulated, that's not going to lead to anything. You know no. what I mean? There's no you can't relational learn. safety there. Yep. We can't learn. But we need enough safety to return and enough kind of compassion and I think one of the most helpful things we can learn, all of us can learn, is that we we all have bad parts. Like mm-hmm. we we are all both light and dark, and we don't have to split our darkness off. We can still love our darkness. And um and I found that really freeing to kind of acknowledge I can be a real, I don't know, like a real asshole sometimes, and and I, I need to love that in myself, and take responsibility for that. Um, and so we had we 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 were able to kind of um. Because I would like to have a loving and warm relationship with her. That's really my intention. Um, But it's not naturally in my control. But we were able to have this really amazingly adult conversation. So I guess um, I also want to give your listeners a message of hope that there is always chances that things can shift and change. Um, And we really have to look at, like, be really adult in ourselves to look at, like, what am I contributing to this this dynamic?
0: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think think it's hard when... um... When you're willing as a person to you know to have that maturity and have do that work and uh, and to be open to that reconciliation at all times and you know that's what i would say is people even in abusive situations um with family it's always important you know it's i look at it like you might have a picket fence with a gate or you might have a picket fence with no gate or you might have a stone wall with a gate and or you might just have a stone wall right there's all these different types of boundaries um, I would hope at a minimum that you can have a stonewall with a gate and that if your family member comes to the gate and says, Hey, listen, I've been to therapy. I recognize my responsibility in these things. Um, I take this yeah. responsibility. I see how I hurt you. And here are some things I'm going to make sure to do to, so that never happens again. Will you give me a shot? Then maybe you talk to them through the gate and then maybe you crack the gate and then maybe you move into a relationship. And then you might have to make them move back out the gate and shut the gate again, but it's not, you're not putting the stone wall up. Now, if somebody's obviously physically and emotionally abusive in a way that is intolerable and that puts people in harm's way every time, then yeah, obviously there's no, no letting them in. But that, like you said, those boundaries and those gates shift over time and maybe you have more resiliency later in life. You know, I know for myself, I, I, I have way more resiliency than I did even, Two years ago or four years ago you know if something would happen with my parents or a sibling or a coworker, you know i'd think about it dwell about it you know ruminate over it for weeks if not months and now generally yeah. it can be you know a couple of days it's still there yeah. and it still bounces off my off my brain but it's like i've worked through the tools and the resources and ultimately i know who i am i was having uh, lunch with somebody right before i came over for this podcast and i was telling him you know i'm not letting things one of my big trigger words is unknown. Um, I hate, I hate to feel unknown. If if I feel like we have a good relationship and I've been consistent and then all of a sudden you question my integrity out of nowhere is extremely triggering. Cause I'm like, well, so 99 times I did this. And then one time it was a little off. And so you assumed the worst. And that's because of my experience growing up um, in my childhood. And it's like, I've learned like that's a lot more about me than it is about that person questioning. Maybe they're just questioning or maybe they're just asking and, and maybe it's not this deep-rooted distrust. <laughs> maybe they're just like, hey, yeah. why'd you do this? And I'm like, what? You questioning my character? Like, ah. And it's like, now I know where that comes from, why it comes up. And I have to take some responsibility in that and go, okay, not every situation that somebody questions something or has an emotion or has a fear that comes up in them has anything to do with this history of consistency or whatever you want to label it. And I think that's yeah. the thing we can take responsibility of as people is like, we all have triggers and we all have a rational thinking that comes up and we have to be, I love, uh, what did you, what did you say? Gentle with yourself? Or, uh, what was your phrase? Gentle with ourselves. Yeah. Very yeah. gentle with ourselves. Yeah. It's yeah. like you, we have to be very kind to that inner child because that's the person who's actually upset. You know, your yeah. adult self's, you know, doing its thing. But like when that little kid comes up and goes, not again, it's like, we have to self-soothe that thing and say, Hey, listen, buddy, like, Hey Clint, like, you're loved, you're valued, you're known. You and so that's why I was telling my, my friend at lunch said, man, it's so nice to be friends with you because you know me good and bad. You know everything about me, you know my that the, I I can I tell you the things that I'm bad at, you see them and you love me anyway. And so why am I gonna get triggered by somebody who doesn't even know those things? What why is their opinion gonna be heavy if they don't even know me that they don't even know me that well? But having people that know you boost that self esteem, boost that identity. And uh and yeah. then you don't need these even your family if they don't know you to validate that inner child stuff.
1: Yeah, you're so right. And I think for many of us, that first place where we get that mirroring of our bad, like of of you're wonderful essentially, and you kind of and and you're good enough and you're lovable, the first place we get that is often in therapy, actually. Yep. Um and and then we can really learn to kind of go look at ourselves and go, Oh yeah. I remember thinking "Oh, i'm not so bad actually right and, yeah and it kind of shifted to kind of like oh you're great um, i mean i don't hold on to that all the time because one of my biggest things is not feeling good enough mm-hmm. and around um uh defending against that because of some of the stuff from my mother and when my brother died um but i think that often when that sort of thing happens and i have a big reaction i sort of i have to like think okay probably what's appropriate here is like 25 of my reaction um <laughs> I like and, that. And kind of just to go. Okay, I'm going to really like downsize everything yeah, and wait. throttle back. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I found nervous system work really helpful for that. Yep. To kind of do something to put me back into a place of, um, of like in Deb Dana's words, ventral vagal, because then you have a much better story. There's like so much hope and possibility there. Um.
0: Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I. Uh, I think for my Christian listeners, like you know. Breathing um, is so important, you know, getting that breath, the breath of God, the Ruach is what the Hebrew word is. And it's like, you know, you breathe and you get your nervous system regulated. And then you ask the Holy Spirit to speak truth in you and go, okay, what's true about me? Who does God say that I am? I'm loved. I'm valued. I'm known. I'm not, I'm not, my behavior doesn't dictate God's view of me. You know, Christ's sacrifice does. And I think it's interesting, you know, we were talking a little bit before about Christianity, but I think one of the biggest things in in christian faith when i work with christians is i'll say like what do you think god thinks about you right now and they'll say i think he's probably mad or disappointed um and then we have to tie that back to like parental things like no that's that's actually if you're a christian not your belief system right that's not the theology the theology isn't god is mad at you or disappointed in you it's god loves you so much because he sees you as his child and you don't have to earn that love and you can't lose that love um but that's a parent thing. That, that's how you were raised by your dad or your mom. And now you've projected that onto God because of people and how they manipulate scripture and how our church and in the world plays out. But the reality is, is that so many of those, even our religious views tie back into our, our family of origin traumas and issues and with men yeah. and women and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think what you just said about um, that. Oh, no, what was I don't know I was going to say. I can't remember what I was going to say, but I think that the, um, because God, like, we are always whole in His eyes. Mm-hmm. There's nothing There's nothing wrong with us. We might have done something that's kind of, um, maybe we've done some bad behavior or something, but that doesn't mean we are flawed or anything. But I think that, like, certainly in my childhood, um, we went to confession from very young. And that meant going to talk to the priest and confess your sins from, like, you had to do that before your First Holy Communion. And in mm-hmm. Catholic Church, your First Holy Communion is when you take, like, com- like the bread. And so you have to practice confession before that. And I look back on that now, and I think it's horrifying to send children six, seven, to go and talk about their sins. It's so it's so shaming mm-hmm. um, and and punishing, in my view. Um,
0: yeah, in the in the wrong context, without the again developmental awareness of what all that means, and, and it being a um, a heart posture. Right. It's just a behavior modification. It's just a, I'm forcing you to go do something. If that seven year old came and said, hey, mommy, hey, daddy, I did this thing and I'm not happy about it. That's a great motive. Right. That's a great lesson to learn is like share with the people that you feel safe with and confess, confess behaviors that you have that. But I, I get an even little deeper thing. We're uh, we're currently writing a, a book for the church on trauma, and and one of the things I've been talking about a lot with friends, and just I haven't talked about it on a podcast, but I guess it's a good way, good good time is is when I think of confessing sin, I think of not confessing behavior, but confessing heart posture, confessing you know just like Adam and Eve, it's you know they they doubted God's love for them, and they doubted His security, and so therefore they listened to Satan, right, or the serpent. Also lie and say, God doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. Look what you're missing out on. And that heart posture of doubt and fear led them to be, you know, wanting to be God and and control the thing themselves. And that's really what I think sin is and what we should confess to one another. Right, is hey, yeah. listen, you know, whether it's you know, anger or I, I bought something I shouldn't have bought or I looked at pornography or I did something that I know I don't want to do and is not in my moral compass, but I did it anyway, is to go to our friends and have our kids come to us as adults and say, hey, you know, I was really feeling unloved today. I was really feeling unsafe today. I got really dysregulated. And because of that, I yeah. doubted that God loved me. I doubted that He was going to meet my needs. And so I took that into my own hands. Yeah. Does that make sense? And that's really
1: kind of. Yeah. Well, that's, I think what you're talking about, there's a sort of co-regulation that you come to me yeah. and, and, and the parent who ever reflects back the essential goodness.
0: Yes. like you're, Yes. It's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's the, it's the psychology of attachment, but attaching to your parent who is going to remind you that your behavior doesn't determine their love for you. Yeah. And unfortunately most yeah. of us were not raised that way in, you know, unintentionally. It's just generation after generation of parents saying hey listen you got to make good grades you got to look good to everybody else you got to behave well to everybody else you got to win the awards because that'll make me feel like i did a good job as a parent
1: yeah yeah exactly and i think it's internalized patriarchy as well That kind of we exist in this capitalist society that says you're only valuable if you've got certain types of jobs or and we also didn't know much about emotions you know if you think about this sort of stiff upper lip approach to emotions that comes from this country and from the UK. And that's kind of spread to a lot of the Western world in some mm-hmm. sense. And this is how we deal with things. It's like emotions are seen as weakness in some way or have been seen as weakness. And we're only kind of, again, in the like, I don't know, in the last 40 years, even really learning how, how actually listening to our emotions is, is the seat of our power actually. yeah, You know, and it, we can use our, make our choices based on, what's going on in our bodies.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's that weird dynamic of, no, you don't want to let emotions dictate you and control you. But at the same time, they're telling you something very important about, you know, your experience and that's valuable. Um, I think that's where we see the, you know, the swing from kind of kids are to be seen and not heard all the way over to, you know, let your kid feel all their feelings and do whatever they want to and, and, you know, live their own life as a child. And it's like, okay, well, there's, there's a a balance there and it's based on the difference in kids. It's based on the difference in in parenting and culture. There's a lot of variables, but it's, that polarization is getting us into a lot of trouble. You know, for my, (laughs) my boys, it's like, you know, there's a, I tell them all the time, like, bud, cry about it. Like daddy cries, you cry, like you, you let it out. You know, if you want to be angry and you want to say some things like that's fine at some point, we're gonna have to learn to regulate, take a breath, do some things, tap, you know, uh, squeeze a ball, drink some water, go run out in the yard. But you've, you know, especially my oldest, I'm like, you're going to have to start regulating. You gotta, you gotta figure this out. I'm here with you and I'm going to help you, but you can't just fall apart. You can't just lay on the floor and kick and scream. You know, you can, you can do that for a moment. I'm not shutting that off immediately, but we're going to have to, right? Now my five and a half year old, he gets a little longer. And it's like, well, that's based on development. That's based on who he is. That's based on what he needs. And I think parents, they want a one size fits all answer for everything. And it's just like, it's just not that simple, you know?
1: It's really not that simple. And I think that your, that pendulum swing is so interesting. The going towards permissive because really the children need boundaries and containment for safety, not just physical safety, but the containment provides the emotional safety. Um, and it's it's very nuanced. I think it's quite a hard thing to, um, you have know, to teach.
0: Yeah, it's difficult because most of the time, right, what you're teaching is the parent to, to ha- be insightful enough about their own feelings, understand yeah. their own attachment so that they can be congruent and authentic with their child. Because I think, uh, right, the brain science shows that the most important thing is one of the most important things is providing that safe environment, that safe connection, which is attachment, right? You ask for what you need and you're gonna get that need met without feeling shame. And um, authenticity as a parent, in my opinion, is one of the basic needs is you don't need to be a perfect parent, but you need to be congruent with who you are and authentic in the way that you parent. Because if you're not, then people, your husband, your wife, your children are going to feel unsafe because you're giving them either an aggressive version of yourself or a passive aggressive version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And and all of us, you know, most people read that really well. And if you have trauma, sometimes you read it even more hardcore than other people. So any yeah. scent of in, inauthenticity is like, I'm out. Yeah. Does that make sense? like. That-
1: yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that um, the problem is, is that so many of us have been raised to be inauthentic, um, and not to kind of connect to ourselves. And I think for parenting, the most important thing is actually our self connection, because we can't connect to our children if we can't connect to ourselves. And I think that you know that, that all those things where you get a script to try and parent your children, none of those really work, because because I believe that if we are regulated enough and have enough regulation or assistance, we'll know what to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes,
1: we need some guidelines and some teaching about some some neuroscience and um, like a model of nervous system healing and things like that. But but because um, often if you say to a parent, how would you treat your best friend? They know how to treat their best friend. And that's just actually how you treat your child with some more containment and and kindness and and boundaries. But often mainstream parenting stuff says to treat the child worse than you would treat an
0: adult. Yes, yeah, they can't have a bad day, right? They can't have a bad moment. They can't have a preference. You know, they, yeah. they need to be, and I think that falls in what I get really annoyed with in our Christian spaces is, is the, the this uh, obedience for obedience sake, you know, and it's like yeah. that that takes the relationship out, which is literally the opposite of the relationship God tried to create, right? He didn't try to create these little robots that follow everything out of just yeah. obedience. He wants a relationship. He wants to be with us and he wants us to feel known and to know him. And if we look at that as a parent with kids, it's like, it's the same thing, you know? Yes, of course I want my children to love me and I want them to act in a way that's respectful and I'm gonna have boundaries that that does that. But how you apply that means you model that while (laughs) while asking for what you need, you know, be respectful, be kind, be considerate, taking consideration what's going on for their little brains, taking consideration, the, you know, know your child well enough to assume and, um, and, be ahead of right um, attunement, like you know, yeah. like tune without them having to tell you because they don't know it three, they don't know it four that they're mad. You yeah. you know, and so you can yeah. meet their needs without them having to say, "Well, I'm mad that I, my brother did this thing," or "I'm feeling betrayed because my friend did this." Like you have to give them that language.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, the 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 thing about that often though this obedience and and compliance is that. Um, control is often a way that we've kept ourselves safe Mm -hmm. and so if our children if we if they're not obedient or not compliant it somehow feels like we've lost control and for so many people that stimulates so much anxiety but actually like really reparenting ourselves in those moments to notice why we're needing control and like obedience for obedience sake as you said there's no point in that because that kind of crushes the child in some sense yes but i think that's one of the most important places we can reparent
0: my oh, experience definitely definitely uh we i do these little uh there's a great book called habits of the household and one of the things it talks about is like the the exit prayer you know when you're walking when you've your kid's doing something and you feel that in your body and, and i would add like he didn't say this but i would add like the stuff you did the reparenting and then going what's this bringing up for me what what my what narrative am i all of a sudden listening to and what fear am i working out of and walking in the hall and just going okay god they're just eight. They're just five. This is the first time they've been five and eight before. Help help me to be regulated. Help me to know who I am. You know, help me to realize I've been here before. This is not new. I know I'm going to go in there and I'm either if I say something that I don't believe or if I think that yelling or raising my voice or spanking them is going to get them to behave, I'm going to be sorely disappointed next Tuesday or tomorrow afternoon or this afternoon when they're right back to doing the same thing because that's what kids do. Yeah, and I'm going to be embarrassed by my behavior, and I'm going to shame myself more. And uh, what? Am, okay, so what? What you know? Help me with that. And then it's much easier to walk back in the room knowing, like, I've predicted the future I want to have, and I've kind of played through this game, and I've looked at my own self, and I've taken into account like my imperfections, and the way I act when I'm hungry or I'm tired or I'm frustrated or my wife's not meeting my needs, like. <laughs> and then you humble yourself, and you can go back in there. And yeah. again, I don't do that hundred percent of the time but i try to do it seven or eight out of ten
1: yeah and i think that's so true because we um like we're allowed to have a bad day we're allowed to be grumpy we're allowed to um i don't know throw our t-shirt or something but we expect often our children to be so much better but more behaved than adults and um yeah i love what you just said about going out in the hallway and having a breath and um I think that takes time to get to that because often we have to really slow down the movie of what we're actually doing and see how we're reacting to have a break and things so we can have a different choice so i i I think that maybe some of your listeners might struggle with that because it takes oh yeah a lot of goes past it and then to see oh look what i'm doing let me try and change that
0: yeah i remember the first time i like five-year-old slammed the door like he went to his room and slammed the door, you know, he's like a little bitty turd, you know, going in there and slamming the door. And at the time, I mean, I went to like a 20, I went in there. I, he like got in his bunk beds. I grabbed him. I pulled him out of his bed. I put him in the corner. I was like, you do not slam doors. Like we are not going to do that. And I walk out and I'm just like, I cannot believe he slammed the door. And so then I'm like walking around. I'm like, why is that so bad? You know, like my brain starts going in, like, why am I actually so mad and what is actually happening? And, you know, so I go back in there and I'm like, look, buddy, you know, and we do the whole, I'm sorry. Like, I, daddy shouldn't have been frustrated with you. And, and that was the first time where I was like, I had been teaching him like body and consent and body safety and all these things. And I'd been saying like, don't ever let anybody do anything with your body that you don't want them to do. Do not let anybody touch you. And I had yanked him out of his bed and put him in the corner you know and i'm thinking well that's incongruent you know like and i'm trying to like process this thing and but you know that had just always been like a whether it was my mom or my dad slamming stuff you know after going into therapy i'm like ah that's why that was triggering you know my parents would my mom would either like slam the cabinets or shift things around to let you know that she was mad without like saying it or whatever and sorry mom you do that and uh If you're listening. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and so it's like, uh, we've had these conversations and it's like, you know, she'd be frustrated and shutting washing the dishes really hard or whatever. And I would go in the kitchen, (laughs) like, what's up? Like, you know, is there a problem? Oh no, no, it's fine. You know? And the, the, the fine word. And, uh, and so now, I mean, I didn't realize that, but that was really a big trigger for me that cause my wife doesn't really do that. She's, she's not passive aggressive in that way. And so, um, After that, I've just had to work like, okay, like I told him, I'm not, I'm not going to grab you. I'm not going to put you in the corner. Like, that's not even something I normally do. I just got in that fear space of like, I have to fix this behavior because he can't do this. Right. And I know a lot of people listening have had some similar experience and you, your kid's behaving in a way, your teenager's doing something, your nine-year-old's doing something. And you're thinking to yourself, they can't do this. Like if they do this at school, if they do this with their relationship and their marriage, like we start going down the future. Right but a lot of times that has way more to do with how that made us feel or some previous experience we had with that, that, that shaping and informing the crisis that we feel like it is.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think what your your point you just made about not predicting into the future, because if we just stay right here right now, it's just a door slamming now and probably felt really good to him to give it like a good whack, you know, (laughs) and probably discharge some anger for him. But I think that, um, I know that sense of fear that you talked about, about they can't do this at school, they can't do this. It's like, they're never going to have any friends if they behave like this. <laughs> and I think that just staying in that, okay, they're a bit angry now and I'm going to help them with the processing. Um, because otherwise we do that catastrophic thinking of like, this is all gone, like just really wrong. And, and it hasn't really, but um, our own, like I think the greatest job in parenting is managing our own emotional state and our own journey and just trying to be as present as we can and just be soothing ourselves all the time. Because honestly, I think it's the greatest learning journey ever, ever, ever. Like the greatest healing opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I always say like uh, marriage taught me how selfish I am and parenting taught me how much God loves me because he just tolerates so much from me. And so it's like, if I can have a ounce of the toleration and grace God for, has, has for me with my kids, like... I'm going to learn so much more about being a good human and being a good husband and being a good person. And, and I'd loved what you said, like, teacher, you know, you wouldn't treat your best friend like that, hopefully. Um, And you wouldn't teach, treat your spouse like that. So look at that same way with how you, how you treat your kids and how you interact with them and how you have patience for it. Um, Yeah. All great, all great stuff.
1: And they are such a great gift. I think sometimes because, because it can be so triggering, we don't like, I sometimes really have to, like I look at their little eyes when they smile at me. And that really connects you to the divine, you know, that kind of that that, um, pure, Mm -hmm. pure love. And so um, it's almost like we need to have a dose of that every day to really remember what a gift this is, actually.
0: Absolutely. I love that. It's beautiful. Yeah, I remember like my littlest, like my oldest looking at me and, you know, loving me and thinking about, you know, this is, you know, he sees me he doesn't see any of my flaws yet. You know, he hadn't, he was like two or whatever. He just sees me kind of like a puppy, you know, they always wagging their tail and loving (laughs) you. Uh, and it's like, you know, wow. Like God, God sees me like my kid sees me right now for this season. Now he knows all my flaws already at nine, but you know, it's like, he still loves me, you know? And that's what I'd remind people too, is if you're a parent listening to this and you have a tough relationship with your kid, you know, they want to they deeply no matter how messed up it is deeply want to connect with you and deeply want to repair things and if you need to repair you're going to have to take responsibility for the pain you cause and you're going to have to humble yourself even if they've done a bunch of unhealthy things like the only answer and solution is you to do your own work and then to go to them you know humbly and say hey like i love you i want to repair this and i realize it's going to take time what can I do what do I need to do in our relationship to, to change or to modify my behavior so you feel safe and you feel you lo- feel loved here are some things I also need and set some boundaries for yourself and most children even adult children are going they they long for that their behaviors yeah. might not seem that way their actions might not seem that way um, you know and if they're on drugs or they're inactive like you know spiraling then no it's not going to be the time to do that but if you're out there and you're you know, really struggling with your kids, your adult kids, your teenage kids, like they want to connect with you. They want to feel safe with you, but it's most likely that you're hurt and you're, you can't see their pain past your pain. And it, it's your responsibility as a parent to, to go first, in my opinion, that you had them, you know, they, you, you, you chose to have them and brought them into your trauma and your history. They didn't. And so it's your job to go first and apologize first and make amends first. And when you force your child to do that, no matter how old they are, then you're abdicating your role. And then that that continues the trauma cycle. Yeah,
1: exactly. Because, I mean, this might sound a bit harsh, but I mean, drug addiction and alcohol, it's always about stuff in childhood. It's always stuff that's come down the family and generational trauma. And so, um, and often things are hidden and there's so much shame and we play out, our children play out our unconscious and other things that are secret in the family. So like owning things, um and and taking responsibility and and honesty i think is like such an important thing but i would agree with you that it's the parents always with the parents responsibility to make amends with the child and it's when that's happened um it's not it never happened to me but um when that's happened to clients it's very 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 like amazing
0: oh it's so it's a it's powerful because, because you just see you know how, I mean, just a little bit of good outweighs a lot of bad. I mean, it's just, it's just yeah. been my experience clinically, whether that's in marriage or parenting situations or addiction, it's like, it might take a little trust building, right? You might have to practice it a couple of times yeah. before the kid believes you, but they're wanting it, man. They're wanting to connect. They're wanting to heal. They're wanting to, I mean, even as adult kids, right? We're wanting our, our moms to scratch our backs and rub our heads and rock us like that. If you have that trauma and you didn't get it and for whatever reason, it doesn't matter the justification, like sure you had a bad childhood and sure it's generational trauma, but we're talking about in the moment now, like we can't, your kid can't repair all that for you, but you can repair that for them if you can get past your pain to see theirs. And I think so many people, like you said, that, that narcissism, that, and even if they're not a full blown narcissist, they have that narcissistic wound to their self. And it's like, they just feel so small and so damaged that they're like Mm -hmm. trying to fill that, that void. And, and yeah, they've got to stop that cycle.
1: Yeah. And, and I think what you're, the thing about the narcissistic wound that in itself is such a big generational trauma. And so, um, it's, but it's kind of that thing, like once we realize that we're lovable and, and can take responsibility for ourselves and still be lovable, um it's so powerful that, but it's so, it's so scary, I think, because then you have to welcome in your own badness, basically. Um, yeah. Very hard if you've got a narcissistic wound.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Because you, yeah. your, your true self isn't, you never feel lovable or good enough if nobody knows you. You yeah. know, if, if you don't show people your mess and, and your, your weaknesses and have them love you through it, then you're always, you're always having that feeling of like, if you just knew if you really knew me, if you knew this thing about me, if you knew how I struggled with this, or thought like this, or parented like this, you'd abandon me, and you know, so then you don't ever let anybody know you, and it's this self-fulfilling prophecy of being alone. But lo and behold, you have a real tight community and a friend, and you tell them, and they're like, oh, me too, oh, I struggle in those areas too, oh, thank God, because I was feeling the same way, like, I thought I was the only one who did that, and then all of a sudden, now you have connection and intimacy and, and reciprocation, and you're like, oh, man, actually, like this person sees that I shop like this or eat like this, and they love me anyway. And yes, then you ask for accountability and help and support and all these things, um, and then you find healing and you grow and and you you know you're not chasing that affirmation; you already have it, even at your worst. And I think for me, that's what goes back to God is God saying, like, look, look, even while you were a sinner, like even while you were at your worst, I, Christ died for you. Like, you don't have to earn it from me. You're not you're not gonna. I'm pleased with you. I can't be any more pleased with you. Like I'm pleased with you because you're my child. I, you're and because of what Christ did, I'm not pleased with you that you didn't cuss this week or you didn't drink too much this week or you did or didn't recover from whatever. Like I love you anyway. It's like my kid running up to me and being like, Hey dad, look, I finished the Legos, don't you love me? And I'm like, Grady, no, I love you, you know, because you're my kid, not because you built a freaking Lego. <laughs> Oh, sweet! Yeah, it's, it's fun. Well, look, I don't. I know we're on on time, so thank you so much, Kath, for coming on. And uh, I mean, you just had some brilliant things to say and connect with, and it was really good for my heart, my trauma kid heart, to just talk through this stuff. And your vulnerability is was beautiful. Um, can you tell people kind of where to go to to follow you on Instagram and and your websites and all that stuff?
1: Um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Clint. It's really been a great pleasure to be here. I didn't realize we had so many similarities. Yeah, um, it was
0: great. Hopefully we stay connected.
1: Yeah. Um, the, um, so I'm on Instagram as Kath Coonahan. And um, I'm actually about to redo my website. My website is still psychotherapymum.com, but it'll probably be kathcunahan.com soon. And I've got a podcast called Grow Yourself Up.
0: Yeah, y'all check that out. It's great. It's all the stuff that you've you you know you've heard some of it on here, but a lot of good new stuff and different ways of talking about it that I that I just love. So
1: thank you thank you so much
0: and
1: i've got a group program called the emotional journey of parenting but um and i hope to sort of resuscitate that some things in my own life have meant that i don't have that much capacity but um i'd like to get back to sort of doing group work like that
0: yeah Yeah. awesome
1: thank you for having me it's been a great pleasure
0: yeah well y'all check her out and uh, god bless you guys and have a good week